0: Good morning, again. uh, There's an outline in the bulletin that will be helpful. If you need a Bible uh, to follow along, there are Bibles out in the uh, foyer. I'm going to... uh, And references that... uh, Parts of the Bible I refer to during the talk will come up on the screen too. Uh, Let's ask God to help us. Uh, True and living God our Creator, help us uh, this morning to receive this word as it is, uh, the word of the living God. And we pray in your mercy uh, that you would let that word do your work in our lives, that it would help us to trust Jesus as our Saviour, and that through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, uh, we would be equipped to live as his people. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. In Jesus' name. Amen. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. introduction to books are so easily passed over, aren't they? I mean, which of us reads the introduction to novels or textbooks? But to pass over this one sentence, introduction to the book of Malachi the last of the prophets in our Old Testament, is to miss a great wonder, a wonder that we often affirm but as often fail to reflect on, that we have in the words of the prophets the words of the living and true God, the creator of heaven and earth. You see, who is the Lord who gives this word? He is the creator of heaven and earth by his word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He spoke and it came to be." He has made all that is by his word. He's made us. Humanity, male and female, given each person life. And the Lord is the one who sustains that life. Psalm 104 All creatures look to you. Verse 30 You send your spirit, they are created. You renew the face of the ground. But he didn't just create and sustain. The Lord is the one who rules over the nations. Isaiah, he brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. He is the one who, in creating and ruling, has a wisdom which is incomparable and unsearchable. He is accountable to no one. Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The Lord is the creator, alone righteous, and he is the holy and righteous God. He's the rock, his works are perfect, all his ways are just. He does no wrong, upright and just is he. He is too pure to look upon evil. He is holy and righteous, the just judge of all, as Abraham said. And of course he is the living God, who, unlike idols, the gods of our own making, can speak and act. And in his word, he addresses us with words that we can understand. And in that address, he makes himself known. He draws us into relationship with himself. And the wonder is not that he can speak to us, because the Lord's the creator. He made speech. He made us with mouths and larynxes and speech centres in our brains. He gave us speech. No, the wonder is that he would want to speak to us. But he has. This is the word of the Lord. He has spoken to people over and over. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Jacob. He speaks to his people through his prophets, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and yes, through Malachi. This is titled a prophecy, or in the older versions, a burden, a waiting message from God to his people. Human words, yes, but God's words, words which, like any human words, can be written down and yet still in that written form, God's words written human words, which are the word of the Lord himself. This is what the prophets claim for themselves, and this is what the New Testament claims for them as well. 2 Peter 1, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives us, yes, human words that speak to us, words that we can understand but which are His words as He guides the prophet to His intended destination. And so, as you gather this morning, reflect on this. Here we have words from outside of us where God, the true and living God, the Lord who knows all things, and who is alone a reliable witness to the truth of himself, tells us about himself, ourselves, our world. Words that, because they are God's words, will be sure and reliable, true, always, trustworthy. Now, of course, many dispute this claim, that here we have a word of the Lord. And more resent it, of course, because words from the living God have authority, The right to expect us to conform what we believe about God and ourselves to them. But as Peter Adam writes, in this matter there can be no neutral ground. The words of the Prophet are either the words of God or they are words that come from the imagination of the Prophet, which are worthless. What actually makes us believers, makes us God's people, is receiving the words of the apostles and prophets as the word of the living God. Now, these particular words, we're told, come to us through Malachi. We don't know much about Malachi. He's not mentioned elsewhere in the Old Testament. His name means my messenger, but there's no reason to think that this is also not his personal name. From the material in the book, Uh, we know that he prophesied to the community in Judah and Jerusalem after they'd returned from exile in Babylon and after the temple has been rebuilt in Jerusalem and sacrifices resumed. Now, many of the issues Malachi addresses are similar to those issues we read about in the book of Nehemiah, another book written after the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon. Uh, Nehemiah, in fact, fact, they're very like the issues we find in Nehemiah chapter 13, issues Nehemiah has to address when, having gone back to the Persian court, he now returns uh, to Judah. And because of this, people locate Malachi generally in the period of 500 to 400 BC, and in particular around the 430s BC before Christ. And so Malachi is speaking to the community of the returned exiles, a small community still living under Persian rule without independence, a community isolated from their neighbours by their distinct religious practice, their worship of the Lord, a community who from time to time, we know, experienced difficult economic circumstances, poor crops. Oh yes, and a community who may also have been dealing with a disappointment in expectations about what the returned community, about what the rebuilt Jerusalem would be like. But interestingly, Malachi does not address his prophecy to Judah and Jerusalem. He doesn't say the word of the Lord to Judah. He says the word of the Lord to Israel. Now Israel's a theologically loaded way of referring to his audience. Israel's a term with history. So Israel had been the name of what we call the northern kingdom. That was a kingdom made up of 10 tribes who separated themselves from the king in David's line way back in the 900s. Now, that kingdom, that kingdom of Israel, had ceased to be. And its people deported by the invading Assyrians in 722 BC, long before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Lots of numbers, aren't there? It's just orienting you, okay? Uh, Before 586 BC and long before Malachi was prophesying. At that time, way back in 722 BC, Israel and most of the tribes associated long since ceased to be. But Israel was also the name given to all the descendants of the sons of Abraham's grandson Jacob his name had been changed by God from Jacob to Israel and his descendants were the 12 tribes of Israel they were Israel and so Israel is the name given to God's people the people who'd received the promises from the fathers the people who had entered into covenant relationship with God at Mount Sinai and prophets Like Ezekiel, the prophets who prophesied during the exile and just before, spoke of a future time of restoration. And when they were speaking of that time, they were also looking forward to a time when all the tribes, the ten of Israel and the two of Judah, would get back together again. And they called that people, that reunited people, Israel. In addressing this promise, this prophecy to Israel. Malachi is addressing the people of God, yes, but he's addressing them as the people of promise, the people who've come to be because of the word, the promise of God, the people with whom God had entered into covenant relationship, the people who continued to be, who had a future because of the word, the promise of God. God speaks a word to his people, the people he brings into being and sustains by his word and that is a wonder. Sitting here today reading this prophecy hearing it you are hearing the word of the living God but even more wonderful is the word he addresses to this people. I have loved you. I have loved you. Now by love God's not just talking about what once was the case in the past, but is no longer. He's not saying, I once loved you. By saying, I have loved you, the sense is, I have loved you in the past and continue to do so. I have set my love upon you and you remain the people I love. God's people, Israel, the people of his covenant, are loved by God. And that love of God is the basis for their relationship with him. It is the fundamental and foundational truth of their existence. Listen to God speak to Israel way back in Deuteronomy. That was after Mount Sinai and before they'd moved into the Promised Land. Listen to God speak to Israel about why he had rescued them. It was because, the Lord says, he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants. Why? because they had been chosen in love to be his people. And why had they been chosen in love? Well, listen to God again, Deuteronomy 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you, that is, he didn't love you, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Hear what God is saying to them. The Lord loves you, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. The Lord loves you because he loves you. This love is free. It flows from God, from his decision alone, from his faithfulness to his promises, his faithfulness to his love. This love hasn't been earned by anything they were or might become or anything they had done or might do. There is no explanation of God's love, nothing behind God's love, other than that he has chosen to love. And this love of God for his people is extraordinary because it continued. It continued despite Israel's persistent rebellion, going off and worshipping other gods. Here the prophet Hosea, again speaking hundreds of years before Malachi, speaking to that northern kingdom. He says to the prophet, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. (laughs) Love as the Lord loves the Israelites. Hosea was a model of God's love, a love that continued despite the faithlessness of the one he loved, so that even in the midst of justly deserved judgment, Lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, Jeremiah could say, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord's freely given love is faithful and enduring. And now the Lord says to the returned exiles, not because they'd been good or particularly faithful, but because of his choice, he says to them, I have loved you. That is the great reality for God's people. God loves them. It was the great reality then, and it is the great reality now. That's right. Believers in Jesus are loved. In fact, they are believers in Jesus because he has set his love upon them freely from eternity. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? But this is what the Apostle says, Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1. "'In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship "'through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will.'" to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Why? Why do we live now as people who enjoy God's mercy? Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved it's because of God's great love that we are his people through trusting Jesus. And that love is the source of all the blessings that we have as Christ's people, of our forgiveness, adoption, the gift of the Spirit, eternal life. I have loved you. Now, if you say you're a believer in Jesus, you believe the gospel that he died for your sin and rose again, do you reckon with that? Do you hear that? Do you believe that every day? Now, as God's person through trusting Jesus, do you believe that he has loved you, that he's speaking to you and he says, I have loved you? Do you believe that whatever the present circumstances of your life, God loves his people? You wouldn't believe it unless he said it. But he has said it. I have loved you. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons. And of course, God's love for his people should be met with love. The love that gives itself to do his will. That's the response that God commands. But that was not the response the people of Malachi's day showed to God. In fact, when God declares his love for them, what we hear, is a sullen challenge. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Now, this is not the honest cry of the suffering, the how long, O Lord, of those in pain. This is not the prayer of those looking to God for relief, longing for the fulfilment of promises they do not doubt. This is the demand of those who disbelieve in their hearts, the word of the living God. In this statement and response, you actually see both the pattern and the source of the dialogues, in a sense, that make up the book of Malachi. That's right. As you see, as you read these four small chapters, and I hope you will do that for yourself because we're going to look at these over the next few weeks, you'll see repeatedly God speaks... And Malachi's audience challenged what God has said. You priests show contempt for my name. How have we shown contempt for your name? Or you've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? Oh, return to me and I'll return to you. How are we to return? Oh, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. How are we robbing you? You have spoken arrogantly against me. What have we said against you? God speaks, they challenge. Malachi is addressing a people of God who have grown tired of trusting God. The challenges show that they do not think God worth worshipping, that he can be treated with the contempt of half-hearted devotion. It shows that they consider that the Lord's really not delivering for them. And it makes no difference whether you obey him or not. But at the heart of all this malaise that we will look at over the next few weeks, at the heart of this determination to reject the word and worship of God, there's what we see here. The refusal to accept God's word, that he has loved them perhaps their expectations about what the return to Jerusalem would be like were disappointed. You know, this was not the glory we hoped for when we, you know, hitched up our ride with the camels, right? Perhaps they're just focused on their present experience and, well, they don't really care about those promises of the future. They're just not receiving the wealth or ease they thought they deserved now. Or perhaps They thought that there was no gain from being committed to the Lord. For all that was demanded by their exclusive faith, they were no better off than the people they lived amongst and possibly even worse off. What they really want is for God to prove his love for them on their terms. Show us your love. They're saying, we'll only believe you love us, God, if you meet our demands, if you give us the life we expect, if you relate to us on our terms. And this word of God, that God loves his people, is a truth that believers in Jesus can also challenge. You may have heard those challenges, even entertained them in your own heart. I'll only believe God loves me if... I'll only believe God loves me if... He meets my desire to be married. He heals me. He gives me children. Oh, he makes getting a good job easy. He hears my prayer for my child. I'll only believe if. Now, they may be right desires, right longings, but to say that you will reject the word of God, his declaration of his love for his people in the gospel, to say that you will only believe God's word when he meets your demands, to say that, You have a right to say, the only love I will recognise is love on my terms. Well, that is unbelief, which is disastrous for our relationship with God, as Malachi will show us. But God is patient with his people. He challenges their unbelief with the reality of his dealings with Israel, starting with his dealings with their forefather Jacob right down to the present. God's love is not empty words, it's not mere sentiment. God's love is seen in his actions, seen in his events, in his dealings with his people, in history, in real time and space. "'Was not Esau Jacob's brother?' declares the Lord." Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Eden may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. God is going to show his people, the reality of his love, by contrasting, in a sense, their future and fate with that of the people of Edom, Esau's descendants, the descendants of Jacob's brother. Everybody that Malachi was talking to at the time knew that Esau was Jacob's brother, his twin brother. And God here is referring the people, to his choice before they were born of Jacob, the younger brother, to be the one who would inherit the promises to Abraham. That choice started to be worked out in their lifetime, as the Scriptures show us, through Esau's despising of his birthright and Jacob obtaining the blessing of Isaac. And that choice continued to determine God's dealings with their descendants. Israel, the descendants of Jacob, Edom the descendants of Esau and so God committed to the promises he'd made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob entered into covenant relationship with Israel at Mount Sinai he didn't enter into any such relationship with Edom oh and God says the reality of that choice is still being worked out in your own day it was a real choice with real consequences and God speaks of that choice in terms of love and hate love speaks of God's covenant faithfulness his determination to keep his promises to Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob to do good to them to persevere in relationship with them by showing them mercy so that even though Israel were sinful and they had that brought home to them in the destruction of Jerusalem they would still exist and continue and have a hope. Hate is the binary opposite of love and speaks of God's determination not to bless Edom, but to leave them with the consequences of their sin. See, God's hatred is not emotional revulsion. It is the expression of his just judgment. And Edom's sins, particularly against God's people, were notorious. For three sins of Edom, even four, I will not relent, because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually. Psalm 137, that psalm that we sing by the waters of Babylon. The psalmist said, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. They had related to Israel with anger and hatred. And God's hate means he will now let Edom bear the full consequences for their sin. As he says in Obadiah, Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you, Edom, will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. Forever. On that day you stood aloof. Edom will be the wicked land, known for its wicked deeds, and so always under the wrath of God. And Malachi is saying to the people of his day, you will see that choice worked out before you. Even though you also are sinful, you'll continue. But Edom... Well, Edom had allied themselves with Israel's enemy Babylon at the time of the conquest of Jerusalem, but then they too had been conquered and deported like Israel. Oh, in the subsequent decades, like Israel, they boasted of returning and rebuilding their land, but actually what happened was that they were invaded by the Nabataeans, Arab tribes pushed out of their land, and Edom as a people ceased to exist. God's love of Jacob means, though they are sinful, life, hope, continuity for his people, and they'd experience that. His hatred of Esau means wrath expressed in deserved judgement. When God says he loves his people, he brings proof, proof in his saving, persevering mercy that means they live as a people. That was true in Malachi's day, and it's true for us. When God says he loves believers in Jesus, he brings proof. And if you are a believer in the gospel of Jesus, the Christian message that Jesus has died for our sins and risen again, you know the proof that God gives of his love. Romans 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us 1 John this is how God showed his love amongst us he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him when God says he loves believers in Jesus he points us to the death of his son for us for our sins that death is the source of all our benefits. Through that death, we are justified, that is, righteous in God's sight. We are reconciled with God, we have peace with him, we have certainty of salvation, we have eternal life and we know a love from which we will never be separated and all that comes because God has loved us in giving his son for us. There is the greatest gulf imaginable between the fate of those whom God loves and those whom he hates, those to whom he shows mercy because of his love, and those on whom he visits just judgment, who experience his holy wrath against their sin, a judgment from which they cannot escape. It's the gulf between heaven and hell, between eternal life in the new heaven and earth and the lake of fire. And when you see how God has loved us, that he's loved us through the death of his own dear son, and when you see what in his love he has given to us undeservedly, surely you will realise what a self-centred offence it is to say to the holy God when he says, you, believer in Jesus, I have loved you. Surely you realise what an offence it would be to say to him oh you may have given your son for me but I will only trust you you love me I will only trust that you're dealing with me in love in all things, even in the hard times, if if you meet my demand Israel, says Malachi, will see the reality of God's election in love worked out in history. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. And when they see the reality of God's electing choice, they will proclaim his greatness, that he's not some local tribal deity. The Lord is the God of all the earth, who rules the affairs of nations to fulfil his promise to his people God's faithfulness to his electing love brings him glory. And God's faithfulness to his love for his people in Christ will bring him glory. On the day he fulfils all his promises to them, when they are spared by the blood of the Lamb in that awesome judgment on the last day and enter into the thousands upon thousands praising him in the new heaven and earth, on that day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus his son as Lord to the glory of God the Father, believers in Jesus will see it because of his love for us in Christ. And they will say, worthy is the lamb. You see, the problem for Malachi's audience was that they had reduced the Creator God to some small deity there to deliver for them. They were focused on the small things being loved in the way they wanted to be loved, their needs, their demands met. They were expecting not too much of God's love, but too little. The fulfilment of their purposes, not God's glorious purposes for his people. And, you know, so often that is our problem, isn't it, when we start to doubt God's love. God, in his love, has promised to make us like his Son in glory to work all things for our good so that we become like his son, so that we be co-heirs of the universe. That's what he has committed himself to in love, but we want and demand less. So what is it that you might have set your heart on? 80 years of good health? A perfect if fleeting relationship with a husband or wife because it will end? Oh, material prosperity, perhaps, with things that will all turn to dust. We set our hearts on those things and say, I'll only believe God loves me if... And so we refuse to know God's love for us in the way in his wisdom and love he is determined to show it to his people, in saving them through Christ and committing himself to make them like Christ. And so we rob ourselves of knowing we are loved by God and knowing the great good God does us in love and the comfort of that good. I have loved you, says the Lord to his people. Do you know that, sitting here this morning, whatever your circumstances, that you are loved, believer in Jesus, by the eternal, almighty God? Do you know that? There is actually only one way to know that beyond doubt. It is to believe the gospel, the word of the Lord, as it is the word of the living God. It's to believe the word that says that Christ has died for your sins and risen again and that God will give to all who trust in forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Believing that word to be the word of the living God is the only way to know God loves you. It's to know with spirit-given assurance that that gospel word, the word that says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, is the true word of the living God. And you have to face it, you'll either know God's love in the way he shows it, or not at all, because everything else you set your heart upon will be taken from you. You either know his love in confessing that you do not deserve to be loved by God because you've sinned against him and yet in gracious freedom God has sent his son to die for your sins and called you to believe that gospel and become his child. You either know his love through believing that he's given his son for you or you will never know it. But if you know it in the way he shows it to you, then, believer in Jesus, you can say what Paul said. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And you're not exaggerating and you're not being full of yourself. You're actually just believing what God says. So is that you this morning? Or maybe you're sitting here Fearing that what you'll actually meet from God is his wrath, not love. Sitting here fearing that you'll receive a deserved judgment because you've actually never humbled yourself to call on the name of Jesus. Maybe you're not even sure who he is. Well, if that is you, don't leave here in fear. The Gospel of Jesus says that anyone who calls out to Jesus, and he lives, he'll hear, anyone who calls out to Jesus will be saved. The Gospel says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And the world's not everybody. The world is a way of describing us in our sin. The world is sinful humanity, organised in rebellion against God, organised to keep God out of our lives, to keep God at a distance. And if you know that's you, (laughs) if you can confess yourself to be a rebel against God, somebody who has actually tried to live without listening to God, pushing God away... If you know that's you, deserving his just judgment for taking his good gifts and then just misusing them without thanks, then you can also know in believing the gospel that God has given his son in death for sin, you can also know that you are loved. Call out to God. If you fear his judgment, call out to him for the mercy he promises to all who trust his son and come and talk but maybe well maybe you're more like Malachi's audience saying you're a believer in Jesus but not accepting that word of God to his people I have loved you not accepting it because there's some desire or some lack gnawing at your heart well if that's you struggling to believe that word go back to the gospel you say you believe And see yourself again as a sinner, someone who doesn't deserve God's love because you've not loved him or loved others as you should. See the holiness of your God. Stop making him little. Make him big in his purity and justice. And confess again what you deserve from the just and holy God is not love but judgment. And see again that in believing the gospel, You confess that God's loved son, his gloriously good son Jesus, has died for you in your place to spare you from that judgment you know you deserve. And then meditate on what he has freely promised you in the gospel, that you will be transformed and rise with his son in the new heaven and earth. And then see how whatever you are longing for cannot compare to what God in his love will give you. And repent of that grumbling discontent for its sin. Repent of that lack of trust that challenges God's love. That lack of trust you have because you've taken your eyes off the gospel, you've taken your eyes off God's holiness, you've let God grow small and mean in your heart and you've made the death of his son a small thing. Confess and find forgiveness. And here's the wonder. Because of the death of his son, he will forgive Find forgiveness and be renewed in the spirit-given assurance of his love that comes through believing the gospel. But if you know it is true that this word is a word from God to you, I have loved you because you are amongst his people, because you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, confess that to be true, like the apostle could, the son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. And rejoice. Yes, rejoice. And live as loved people, trusting your God in all things. Determined to live in his love by loving him and keeping his commands, including his command, to be thankful always. Isn't it bizarre to have people who say that they are loved by the eternal almighty God and they go round grumpy? we should be thankful. Joy is a command. Confess his love and meditate on its depth and its freedom, which makes you so secure. And the wonder that you, knowing yourself, can say because of God's free and generous love for the undeserving, that the Son of God has loved me and given himself for me, and in giving His Son for you, has given you all things with Him, and has promised to work all things to fulfil His goal for you that you be like His Son Jesus, the firstborn amongst many brethren. Confess, and rejoice, and live joyful lives, and yes, pray for yourself and for each other. That in this world where we can so easily lose focus, so easily be distracted, so easily forget. Pray that all of us, rooted and established in love, would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Pray that, because that is the heart of perseverance and joy and of a life lived in love of God and others. I have loved you. Trusting Jesus, do you receive that as God's word to you, whatever your circumstances today? Let's pray. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we are such ordinary people, Amongst so many people in this world. And we know we are sinful people. Even though our world doesn't like that language. We haven't loved you with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. Nor have we loved others. And yet we give you thanks and praise. That you have spoken a word into our world. You've spoken a word into our hearts that even while we were sinners you have shown your love for us by giving your son to die for us we thank you and praise you for that love we thank you for its effectiveness and we thank you that it endures and we thank you that because of that love you have made us your own And you will raise us up at the last day. Help us to trust the gospel of your Son. And trusting that gospel, help us to know we are loved. And knowing that love, make us loving people who want to share this love with others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.